Welcome to Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that highlights the art and lives of the most innovative string players on earth. I'm your host, Matt Bell. This is a really special episode. Martha Mook is a legend in the electric string world. She's been breaking new ground continuously for more than 20 years. Besides her own work, which we'll discuss and listen to in depth, she has performed with everyone from David Bowie and Barbara Streisand, which she'll talk about in this interview, to Bon Jovi, Enya, Tony Bennett, and Pavarotti, plus way too many more to list here. Try to find a more varied resume than that, I dare you. This is a long episode, over an hour and a half, but Martha and her music are totally deserving. She's a Yamaha performing artist, she has an ASCAP Concert Music Award, she's been a composer and music director for more international events than anyone can count. Okay, her list of achievements is impressive. But what's even more impressive, at least to me, is her music. Very few artists can claim the depth of originality and creativity that Martha can. You're listening to her tune, Virtual Corridors, right now. This episode is sponsored by Electric Violin Shop. We're honored to say that she is a friend and supporter of the shop and frequently refers people to the shop for our unparalleled level of gear and expertise. No other place on the planet has the selection or the knowledge that EVS has. If you can't visit the shop in Durham, North Carolina, we ship to over 90 countries around the globe. ElectricViolinShop.com Now, I met Martha in a coffee shop near her home in Terrytown, New York last week. You'll hear some commotion in the background, but I think it just adds to the feel that you're sitting next to us for a casual chat about life and art and music. So grab your favorite beverage and enjoy my conversation with Martha Mook, rock star violist. Usually guitar players. And uh, there's one that's in Barcelona, Jordi Martinez. And uh, he's been after me to do a, he calls it the Interstellar, um, their collaborations with other artists. So he sent me a track of him on on guitar, and then I recorded um, some electric viola tracks using the H9 and improv and stuff, and, and video. I sent him everything, and then he created... Uh, he added some more solos and tracks on, on top of that, and he just released it the other day. So that's that's been sort of flooding out there, kind of a cool duo collaboration without being in the same room. That's sort of like the internet has changed everything, right? Totally. Because you and I both started in this business like way before any of that. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I remember. Must have, must have been at least 10, 10 or so years ago, doing a recording session for um, Linda Thompson. And there was a track that her son Teddy had done, and it was just for string quartet. And I forget who the arranger was, big-time arranger over in, in London. And we were playing it, and it was such a big thing because after we played it, they were able to email him an mp3 of what we were doing and that that was like a really big deal it was a, uh, in, in those days you know because the, the uh, files were so big and there was they weren't really doing these discrete type of sessions so yeah the internet has changed a lot in the way of recording 
think it's changed a lot in the way of recording. It's also changed a lot in the way that we're able to find each other and interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And there's just this whole globalization of, you know, like, I just pull a name out of my head. Rohan Roy is a friend of mine in India mm-hmm. that I would have had no way of knowing about right. without social media and without the internet. Yeah. Yeah, and Facebook with all the different groups, yeah. electric violin groups, and Nasta, and my viola's on the verge. And, you know, just well, speaking of Asta, the, the American String Teachers Association, you're one of the, the, the people that everybody looks to there. I, mean, I don't know if you're on the board or... No, I just um, got in early because of my affiliation with Yamaha as one of their first electric string artists and so I've been doing demonstrations and workshops since before 2000 basically and um, so I just keep presenting at first it's you know it was one of the first electric string workshops basically it was so, so such a new model out there that teachers had no information. They didn't know what to do with the instruments. They didn't know, let alone how to teach it. Um, and they were, you know, maybe they didn't have the the instruments yet. They didn't know what instruments to get. They didn't know what gear to get. They didn't know how to plug this into that. It's very intimidating. They still don't in a lot of ways. Right, and that's why um, actually just did a blog for Yamaha. Uh, where I've had a schematic that I give out at, at the workshops that I do. It's called um, The Power of Strings Plugging In. That was one of, one of my first workshops. And it's a, it's a schematic in three parts. And the first one is the very basic of what you need to, to plug in. You need the instrument and a sound source, like a, either an instrument amplifier or a PA. And then the next step is putting something in between the instrument and the sound source. Could be a you know one foot pedal. Could, could be a delay pedal or a fuzz or a distortion or a computer or an iPad. And actually, in those days, they couldn't put an iPad because they didn't exist yet. <laughs> but you could put a computer. Uh, it's just a, and you know just a matter of than knowing of, a, of an interface. And then the third one is just is, uh, lots of other op- possibilities of what you can put in between yourself and where the sound comes out of. And that all stems from when I was first doing this back in the 90s and trying to get my music played on the radio and having somebody like John Schaefer at WNYC who had still has um, very influential programs and who told me he doesn't like to play recordings of electric violins or electric strings because amplified strings sound terrible. I mean, you know, this was, this was way back then and I said, I agree. And that's why I consider not just the instrument but everything I put in between the instrument and this and the source, the speaker, or if it's a direct line, um, that is all my instrument. It's not just the instrument that I'm playing, um, but by the same token, if you start off with a you know a cheap, horrible sounding instrument and you just keep adding cheap 
garbage material in garbage. In yeah. exactly. Um, so that's why I start with a good quality sounding instrument, and I I never really went the route of MIDI because I. I like the sound of the instrument, I like modifying the sound of the instrument. I don't want to sound like a different instrument. Um, and plus, in those days, it was really hard to do the tracking of MIDI. It's still not easy. Yeah, especially if, you know, if I use a lot of very expressive kind of playing, very, from very soft to, to loud or, or almost no bow pressure to crazy kind of... Uh, percussive techniques and bow techniques and left-hand percussive techniques. And that doesn't track well. So I, stu I stuck with, um, with the going through the, the, the pedal board. Um, I've used some computer programs peripherally. Like a couple of years ago, I had a big multimedia piece called Dreaming in Sound where I had not just my pedals doing my my uh, stereo uh, multi multi looping but I, I had um, simultaneously max MSP um, with four additional four speakers that could isolate the sound so I was actually loading I could do six loops at the same time and have them travel in different directions around oh, wow. me yeah it was very it was very cool very immersive and I had interactive video visuals rather that were um, responding to my sounds that's awesome and then I was in turn was responding to the visuals so sure, it was really interactive totally experience. interactive and as if I had a whole ensemble of instruments and visuals, you know, so which, and that's, a, my interest in that is that, why it's so important to, to for live performance is that every time I do it, it's different. It may start out with the same idea of the piece, but ultimately, there'll, there'll be differences, sure. um, you know, just depending on how I feel, depending on the audience, depending the visuals or the sound source, the room. Room is part of the performance sure. as well. And the people in a room, like the way exactly. they're responding to you. Yep. Um, I think it was Zappa that was talking about how like every performance is its own thing. Everybody in the room is contributing to the energy in the exactly. room that, that changes. I mean, it, depending on how you want to look at it, like every person in the room deserves some credit for what the, what the final product is. Absolutely, and I think the audience they don't they they sort of lose that um, a little bit as well as there's a lot of musicians that are especially in the or, in the orchestral and the concert world you know walk out on stage and they're kind of playing at the at the audience and I always try to talk with the audience and, and engage them and invite them further in so they know that this is a really unique experience that they're having even if they go and hear the same concert tomorrow, they won't be sitting next to the same person. They will not have had the same things to eat. They maybe will have a headache, or maybe they're feeling great, or whatever. Um, they won't be experiencing it the same way. And to know that the performer picks up on the vibe of the audience. And I, you know, I try to have a personal connection with everybody in the audience.
And so um, it just it takes the performance to a whole other dimension, rather than just playing music at somebody. Uh, we talked about that in a, in a band that I was playing in a, a while ago about how do we interact more with the crowd, and we want them to feel like we're playing with them, not at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it enhances the experience, and that's really what what it is. It's just people are not so aware of that because they are so used to you know they pay for their ticket and then they go and sit down and the concert happens and they applaud at the right times. And I'm I'm talking because. You know, I'm coming from the classical world. Um, one of the, the things that really opened up my consciousness to an all-immersive concert experience, which is what I call my performances now, concert experiences, was going to Cirque du Soleil. The very first time I, I went to one of their shows, the performance starts as soon as you hand your ticket in at the box office or at the ticket taker. And then it's you know almost like a Disney World kind of thing, where the everybody's in costume that works for the show. Um, the pre-setting the show, the the um, the tech and the crew, they're all in some kind of costume or they're part of the, the performance. So um, that was a big aha moment for me in terms of performance, approaching performance. And also, uh, when I was in college, I, I was a stage manager and a house manager. And um, the very first time that I house managed for um, an Indian music concert, that that really, um, where if people were were hearing something that they liked, they showed their appreciation right away, and then and that could change where the the music was going definitely changed the dynamic of the performance Um, as in you know in jazz when somebody plays a great solo you applaud right then you show your appreciation for it Um, and again that's a very foreign aspect to classical musician or classical concert you know heaven forbid somebody applauds in between movements or (laughs) yeah yeah people you know shushing them um and interestingly, I, I started since I, I started working with Razel, the beatboxer, a couple of years ago, and then I curated an event last year at Symphony Space, and that was a spoken word event. And I hadn't experienced that much of going to spoken word events, and and the way that they show their appreciation, uh, which I I thought was so effective, instead of applauding, they. They snap, they click, and um, so not so as not to step on the sure. on, on the words. So each each genre has its own way of showing appreciation, and I think that's that's as much of the part of the performance as well. Well, it just I mean, as a performer, it helps you get some feedback to know what what am I doing that's resonating, and what am I doing that's not resonating, mm-hmm. and you know just. We are, I think most of us performers are at least on some level are, are people pleasers. And when you see in their eyes or, or you can you can hear in their response mm-hmm. something you did that they like that, you're going to try to give them more of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have told audiences it's fine to close your eyes and experience the sounds not just through your ears but through different parts of your body. 
And, um, you know, as long as you don't, like, start drooling on your neighbor, it's, it's all good. <laughs> right. Depends on how open-minded your neighbor right. is, right? So, you were one of the, sort of, the pioneers of what we're seeing. I think we're seeing a huge push in electric violins yeah. and electric violins and cellos now, and maybe partially due to social media, the awareness right. being out there, and maybe partially due to people like Lindsey Sterling who has reached just an untold number of people. Um, but I, I sort of feel like electric strings are now where maybe electric guitar was in the 50s. It's starting to become like publicly known that this is a thing. And it's yeah, it's, it's kind of curious, though. It's actually been a very long evolution um, from where I first started, which was when I was in high school in the 80s, <laughs> I will admit. Um, my whole consciousness changed when somebody gave me a recording of Jean-Luc Ponty, A Taste for Passion. And that was my aha moment in terms of, of where my career path went to. From being, I was on the, you know, the road to being a classically trained violist, which I am, but I have a parallel road and I can point to that singular moment um, crediting Jean-Luc Ponty and, and he was doing all that in the 70s and 80s this is He's not um, and you know and with the not just the jazz but the improvisation and the electronics and um, so it is, it's kind of curious how it's taken that long to really seem to I mean there have been a few to stars and people along the way but to really get into something where it's being taught in the schools or it's a real um, not just accepted but but legitimized form of, of music making this is a snippet from Martha's tune a dream in sound from her 2015 release no ordinary window And that's one of the reasons why I'm so active in, in ASTA, uh, as I was when there used to be IAJE, before the uh, Jazz Educators, before it was the Jazz Educators Education Network, it was the International Alliance of Jazz Educators. And I, I several years, did, did some tech um, sessions there to show how, to, how exactly how to plug in and how to work with the electronics and the instrument and doing all those demonstrations. So um, it's been going on 
for a while. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm glad to see it picking up steam now. And there's certainly more instrument makers on the market. You know, when I started as a Yamaha artist, that was really the infancy of what they were doing. I had one of one of their first prototypes of the silent strings. Okay. And that's how it started out was as a, as a practice instrument. Right. So, you know, the whole the whole idea was that you could plug headphones directly into the instrument and practice and not bother your neighbors. Was that the SV100? Is that all the way back to, to that? Yeah, the, I don't even remember the model numbers, but there was the first iteration of silent violins. And we had a silent violin, silent cello. They didn't, weren't making violas at that point. And it had, um, it had a, a mini plug. It wasn't a quarter-inch jack. It was a mini jack. And, and double-A batteries. And so, you know, they sent it to me, what do you think about it? And I, like, I love it, but I, I want to play it out and loud, you know? And um, gave them some ideas of modifications. And pretty soon they had an adapter so to, to have a quarter-inch jack, which was sort of the standard. And then eventually they changed the... the Two AA batteries to a nine volt battery, and right. you know, getting a little more with the standard. But I guess what you know, what guitar players were doing, because what was what we were, what I was playing through was a you know pedal board. What guitar players do, right. and that's how I started finding my sound was asking guitar players what they were doing, what they were using, and asking any other um, string players that I knew of. My very Actually, the very first electric instrument I had was a Barkus Berry, which was the exact same model and color that Jean-Luc Ponty has on the cover okay. of A Taste for Passion, a beautiful blue five-string. And I still have it. Oh, wow. And I played it for years until I went to hear a band called The Horseflies that were opening for 10,000 Maniacs mm. years ago. And the fiddle player was playing this beautiful electric violin and I went back to her after after the show and we started talking about it and Judy Hyman and um, she gave me the name of the the, the, um, the maker Eric Aceto Ithaca <laughs> yep. string instrument yep, for sure. and I called Eric and this was in the late 80s I think and I, I said I love I love your the, the violin. It, was, it had a very different different look to it and, and the sound. Um, but he hadn't been making violas, so he said, "Send me the specs of your acoustic," and I did. And and he made me the first viola size. He was calling them violect five strings. So that was my my first viola did you go size. The high E or low F? It it's it's gone both ways. Okay. Over the years, and as I increase the number of electric instruments I have in my in my house <laughs> in my studio, um, for a while I had I had one that was tuned with a low F. I had one that had octave strings on it because I remember hearing Turtle Island String Quartet playing, and I, maybe it was Daryl Anger that had a, a octave set of octave strings. So I got in touch with. Um, it was super sensitive, and they, you know, got a set of octave strings, and then um, 
and then of course you know on on electric viola you need to have extended extended e strings so you have to find what who's making those and extended f strings for viola and, and so it, it's been a real um, journey of you know, working with uh, collaborating with with Yamaha and and string companies and bow um, working with Glasser on, yep. on his carbon fiber bows. So um, I was just at his condo in San Diego like a week ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. And his instruments. Yeah, well, he's doing carbon. Yeah. Yeah, I love him. Have you got one of the violas yet? Yeah. Okay. I've tried a few of the different ones, giving him feedback and and all that. I haven't had a chance to play it out yet, but I'm looking forward to it. The very first thing I had to do with Glasser, and I didn't even know it when, again, this is going back 20-some-odd years, um, I went into Ideal Music, which was, I forget where it was, 23rd Street or something, and um, this was before there were a lot of carbon fiber bows on there, and um, I was doing a lot of percussive work, so I bought this bow called Duro. D-R-R-O. Okay. And then uh, they asked me to do a, a testimonial to how much I liked the bow and put an ad in Strings Magazine or whatever. Years later, I actually did, um, wrote a letter of support for, for Andrew for his, his bows, and it turned out that he was Duro. <laughs> oh, it was his. It was his, with a different name on yeah. So it all sort of comes around. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they sent me all kinds of prototypes of bows to try out and give feedback. And, and um, Yamaha, in the early stages when they were just coming up with the, the EV model, when they hadn't made the viola yet, and they uh, brought me over to Hamamatsu in 2000 to spend a couple of days with their design team. They brought me and Charlie Bisharat. Okay. And wow, um, so fun. yeah. And so and one day we were working with the the um, silent violin team and they, you know just trying different prototypes and and things and answering questions and the next day we were working with the EV team and so out of that came the EV 204 and EV 205. And um, still some very highly sought instruments, by the way. Oh yeah. I mean, they don't make them anymore. No. But, but the people who want them still, it's like, I mean, there's a dwindling supply of those things. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I have two. I have um, two EV two hundred fives, but they they made a special model for me um, that has an extended string length. Oh okay. So that's the thing is like in electric strings, there's, we, we actually carry at the violin shop, we carry 20 different manufacturers mm -hmm. of electric violins, and I think there's like three or four of electric violas. Yeah, and I had somebody asking me yesterday, I went to a viola dinner, <laughs> and um, somebody was, was asking me about electric violas, and of course they know about the Yamaha, and I said, you know, call the guys at electric violin shop. They know what's out there, they'll, they'll tell you. Um, aside from what's out there, you know, then you have to call somebody like, you know, Eric Aceto or some unmaker and have it custom made beyond that. Because violas, 
most of the the electrics that are out there are probably one size, like sixteen and that's inch. There's so many different sizes of viola too. Right, right. And she's like, well, my you know my viola is sixteen and five eighths. And I said, well, you're gonna have to have a custom made, which is, you know, what I had my first instrument. Eric did that custom made. So if you can have a maker do that, you know, the price point will be a little bit higher, but you'll have something that that you're comfortable switching back and forth from your your acoustic instrument. That's kind of the hard thing about being a violist is that there's a lot fewer options. Yeah. Because there's a lot fewer violists so, than there are violinists. So, yeah. You know, just the numbers game is not working in your favor. And then there's all these different sizes. But um, I think what's, what is working in, the favor, in our favor, and which I have really been a proponent of, is the five-string. Uh, because then you, you can have violinists and violists playing the same repertoire. Right. Also, it's just a matter of what clef you use. So that's the question for you. Is I don't I don't usually generate a lot of written music. Most of my stuff is all just flopping around here in my head, or it's on tape somewhere, which shows how old I am because I still call it tape. Um, so if you're transcribing, how do you transcribe? Do you generally transcribe to uh, to uh, alto clef. Um. It, well, it depends where, you know, if I'm, I'm high up on, you know, um, in violin range, it's treble clef. But um, usually what I do is I, when I'm writing, um, it starts with words or I record myself or I, I jot some stuff down on, um, on note, note paper. And then I'll retro notate. After the piece is done, I have to, I have to go back and figure out what it is. So along the way, I have to take some really good notes as far as what, not only what I'm playing, but what effect I'm using and what it does. Um, because, you know, I've written pieces for large ensemble, like for concert bands and for orchestra. And uh, so when I notate, I have to, the viola becomes a trans, transposing instrument. So I have to notate not, not only what I'm playing, because I could be, you know, look look like I'm playing just a, a, a melodic line, but it can sound like a whole range of um, rhythmic, different, you know, different rhythms, or yeah, um, or it can sound like uh, if there's harmonization in there, one note can can sound like a whole chord, or it can sound like an arpeggio. So I've had to kind of do a double line when I notate for um, for a larger ensemble, so the conductor can understand what it is that I'm, I'm playing, what he's hearing, or she's hearing. Yeah, it's so like some of the challenges that are presented to to artists that are playing a little outside the box. It's like we don't know how this isn't really a written language yet. We don't know how to. Yeah, um, I mean that every time I notate something, I have to um, make a you know a key performance practice key. Um, if I come up with different symbols, I have to say what that is. I you know I do a lot of explore, exploring of um, left hand and right hand techniques and and percussion type of techniques, so I have to create a notation that's going to um, be affiliated with that in the score, and then like, I, I just um, had a piece premiered, it was a commission by the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, 
And it was in two versions. One version where they, they played the piece just with the orchestra, and then the second version, I joined them as the electric viola soloist with all my electronics. And, and there was improvisation in there. Uh, but I also had a lot of different techniques for the string players to use, which in a traditional orchestra, they're not so used to doing things like with the left hand, where you're, you're just hitting the fingerboard to create a percussive kind of sound, or, or you're doing a, a, a flutter with the bow while stopping any pitch sound. So you're, you're getting a... a like, a, like a DJ scratch kind of Kind of, that, yeah. And they're like... It, it was a new thing for them, so I had to create a whole series of videos that I posted on YouTube for them before the first rehearsal, though, so they could see me demonstrating what was written in the, in the part. Um, and then I had to do a little more demonstrating at the first rehearsal. So that's one element of it, and then if I'm using electronics... I have to notate, you know, pretty close to the kind of um, program or effect that I'm using. If it's delay, I need to write what what the delay is, seconds, milliseconds, whatever. Um, if it's a flange, I need to notate that or distortion. Um, and so, because not everybody's going to have the same... Hopefully somebody else will be performing this at some point and they won't have this, the exact same equipment that I have. So if I, you know, I need to tell them kind of delay and they can translate it into, into whatever they're using. Martha just mentioned her tune Xing that was commissioned by the Philadelphia Chamber Orchestra. This is a bit of a live recording of that tune with Martha and the Pops Orchestra in Sarasota, Florida. opportunity like for No Ordinary Window which was which was created basically using the Eventide H9 effects pedal and the cool thing about that is that you can control it from your iPad or your iPhone so what I did was when I created the patches and I figured out that you know the algorithms and my specific um, 
program that uh, the details within each patch. I took a, sna a, a screenshot from my iPad of all the settings, and I actually printed that in the published music. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So speaking of that tune, um, let's, I'd love to hear about your, your process for writing that and maybe some of the inspiration for that, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll listen to it and everybody can, can hear what it is that, uh, that we're talking about here. Cool. Yeah, that um, that No Ordinary Window was written um, as a commission by the Tribeca New Music Festival, and um, so I wrote it for that. And they, the first thing they asked, you know, if they needed to do the promotion, what's the title of the piece? And for me, the title depends. Sometimes the title comes right away. Sometimes the title comes after I've written the piece. But they needed the title right away. And so I was sitting at my desk, my computer, looking out the window. And the, I don't know, no ordinary window just sort of popped into my head. So that was the title. And then I had to create a piece. And so that sort of... Um, grew into different sections. There are six sections in the piece. It's about a 15-minute, 16-minute piece. Um, and each section has a title of... Uh, see, one is Window of Opportunity... And another is um, stained glass, stained glass window. And, um, and then there's some intermediary sections in that. So the piece is not initially it wasn't listed in movements. It was I, I put it out on the recording uh, just as one long piece. And the the title of the recording is No Ordinary Window, and there's there's uh, several other pieces on there. And the idea was um, I was going to create a, a a No Ordinary Window tour, which I've done to a certain extent, and finding venues where the the window has something to do with the performance. For example, the very first one I did, um, which was a a dream of mine to do a concert in Sedona, Arizona, in, in amid the, the red rocks, and there's, I had in my, in my mind, um, this chapel up in the, up in the, ro in the rocks. Um, I was there at sunset one year, and it was just spectacular, you know, it was a whole performance unto itself, and that was my dream scenario, and I, ended up in the, um, actually speaking with Tony Agnello in, in um, the president of Eventide and I'm just telling him this because I had done a, um, a video thing for them and I said this is my dream to play a concert in, you know, with, these, with the backdrop of the Red Rocks and, and he's like oh I know somebody with that view and he picked up the phone and, oh, nice. and uh, it turns out it was the Richard Factor, who was the creator of Eventide. <laughs> so I ended up playing a house concert in, in the house of Richard Factor. It was, it was just a, one of those amazing experiences. You know, you put your dream out there, and, sure. and it can happen. Um, and I've done it. I've done uh, No Ordinary Window in, in Havana, in a church, an old church with the backdrop of stained glass. And what I do is I start the concert before sundown, and so the sunset becomes 
the lighting for the concert. So when you start, you, you, the audience can see out the windows, and then they see how the light changes, and ultimately, by the end of the concert, it's dark outside, so the window actually becomes reflective, like a mirror, and the audience sees themselves. So that's another version of what what the window is, and and I try to convey that in the in the music. And um, so it's solo electric viola with um, just lots of different effects that come out of this one particular unit. That was, and that was the first piece that I wrote when I first got that the um, the H9. Which is something that I do every time I get a new piece of gear. I just explore it to the to the limits of what it can do and what it can't do, and then I create ways of doing what I want to do. It's amazing how like a different effect can inspire different ideas. Absolutely, and and um, I've written about that. How it it's actually part of the collaboration. I I feel like it's another. The, the electronics are another musician like in a chamber music setting and uh, what I play if I you know I play one note and the effect is um, you know digital delay which has a rhythm to it I can play one note and it can launch a whole series of of notes or uh, or harmonies and then I respond to that in kind so if you hear the you know the last movement of No Ordinary Window and you look at the music that I've written it's just one melody and yet that was totally informed by the harmonies that come out of each note that I play because it's a series of fifths going up and a series of fifths going down and it's like crossing through traffic so as you're as you're um, playing the notes, you're you're hearing this whole series of other notes and harmonies, and, and then the next note or come cr crosses through that, cuts through that, and becomes a whole other series of harmonies, and, and um, so that that was one one of the ways that I used that. And you catch yourself playing something that you would have never played if there's another effect going Right, you know, it's right. Like somehow it's triggering different parts of your brain. Yeah, and then there's another movement where, um, with pizzicato, I just, I'm, I'm, I play basically bum, 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 and it comes across doing digga 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 you know, it, with a lot more complexity to it. And that gets looped, and then on top of that, I've got a, um, um, I think it's mainly in thirds, melodic line that goes over that, that also has effects on it. So, um, and, um, and then, the, you know, in the, in the first movement, I play a line with almost no effect on it and then I use uh, an expression pedal so that I can I can transform the particular algorithm live um, from can change whatever parameters on it whether it's, it's harmonization or, or the or reverb setting or the delay setting and uh, so I like to play with that live so you hear the line played with almost no um, almost no effect on it and then 
I'll just totally 100% kick it in and you'll hear how that same line sounds with the effect totally kicked in. Okay. And that's the opening section of that. And then I've stained glass um, the effect that I have on. I, I play some high pizzicatos and, and it comes out with all these sparkly effects, these shimmers, and it's it's great. And then I, if I kick out the, the expression pedal and you actually hear the whole transformation going from the, the high to the low uh, with that particular effect. So again, it's just a matter of lots of ex exploring, you know, when, when you're writing, or when I'm writing, that's, that's kind of my process. Um, awesome. Well, we'll listen to the piece now, and, uh, and then we'll come back. Now, we're going to play No Ordinary Window here in its entirety. It's pretty long, about 17 minutes. So hang out and enjoy, and we'll see you back here in a bit.
I re-released re No Ordinary Window when the whole streaming thing really was kicking in, and because I didn't, I didn't want to release a single that's a 16-minute single to be sold for the same price, you know, 99 cents as somebody with a, a two-minute and 15-second single. So I held it back, so, which meant it wasn't going on these streaming platforms. So for the first year or year and a half, No Ordinary Window wasn't available on Spotify. Because, you know, you know my whole thought was, I, I just don't want to put my music out for free. You know, this is my income. This is, this is what I do for a living. But the whole, the whole model has changed. And well, I guess iTunes is going away at the end of this year, too, right? They're not going to be selling music on iTunes anymore? Right, it's all, yeah, it's all streaming. So it's like you have to adapt or, or go away. So I actually re-released No Ordinary Window, the whole recording. I, um, I called it No Ordinary Window Reopened, and it's only available in digital form because I went back in to the two really long-form pieces, which is No Ordinary Window and A Dream in Sound. Both of those pieces were over 15 minutes long. And I cut them up into movements, and each movement is about two and a half minutes long. So that now that's all available, I re-released it, and so each movement is available separately to download or to stream, or you can still listen to the entire, the piece in its entirety. Yes, it's, um, I mean, we can sort of fight the world that, that is, or we can try to adapt to it. You know, the idea being, I guess, is, you know, you want people all over the world to know your music, and, um, you know, they're... The, the CD thing really still I only exists pretty much, you know, at, at a live show. People to take as a, as a souvenir, basically. Um, and it's just to get to people to to know your music. So hopefully the numbers add up, and 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 the live, you know, performances wanting them wanting to have you in their backyard <laughs> or on their their local stage. Yeah, I talked to Joe Denison about the CD thing not that long ago, and he's still, for Stratospherius, for his band, he's still really pushing. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a little frustrating because so many people just don't buy physical media anymore. Nope. And, you know, in fact, a lot of people aren't even buying music on iTunes anymore, which I think Apple's reacting to by, by taking it down. But he said... And I was I was kind of questioning like you know why are you even continuing to try to get this windmill you know he said because people gotta have this stuff there's it's not dead unless unless we let it well, at least on some level yeah know? yeah I mean, it's an interesting thing look what's happened with the LP with vinyl um, there's been a resurrection of that in fact. I just um, opened up a, a couple of boxes of records that I had bought years ago or that my parents had. And, and I had a really interesting collection of, of viola LPs. But I have, a, I have a, a record player, but I haven't used it, and I probably won't. So I just 
for the sake of it, I posted on, you know, on Facebook. I said, any viola players out there interested? And I posted a, a picture. And um, there's some real classic recordings out there. And I was really surprised at the number of people that got in touch that said, oh, I want, I want that. I, you know, I want the Michael Tree. I want the Pika Zirkerman. I want, you know, I want the, the Shostakovich. I want the Hindemith. And um, so it was kind of a cool thing to know. People are still interested in, in those recordings. So I think there's definitely truth in that. And, and you know, something to be said about having a tangible object. And, and you know, in, in, in No Ordinary Window, when you get the, the CD, it's, it's a really attractive cover. I worked really hard on, you know, on the imagery. Um, and there's also a, there's a hidden message when you lift off the CD. There's a beautiful quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in there. And the only way you're going to get that is if you buy the CD and you lift off the, C, the, the actual CD and, and see the quote in there. And I, I think it is a little sad because you go back and, and look at all the classic rock stuff that happened in the 60s, the 70s. Some of that album artwork was amazing. Oh, yeah. And, and I think, you know, we're getting away from that. And I think yeah. maybe it's moving more into the music video realm, the YouTube and, and, and all these kind of videos that people are doing. But I think there was an era where album art was... It was oh, really it was art. huge, yeah. And not only that, but then a lot of a lot of the albums came with inserts, program inserts. I have, I was a huge Elton John fan. Captain Fantastic has that, um, a whole program booklet inside that you, you can't get that anywhere you know, with amazing artwork and, and illustrations as well as the, the lyrics well speaking of, of Elton John and some of those you've played with a lot of, of really amazing artists throughout the years not just the yeah. Martha Mook show but you've been sort of backing up or playing alongside a lot of these these big cats yeah talk about some of those and some of your some of the fun experiences from that maybe some cool stories yeah um and you know it's had a really fortunate um bunch of experiences working with i mean i i did a uh, several tours with barbara streisand playing with that the amazing orchestra traveling with a 50-piece orchestra throughout the u.s and and europe and the the um, you know playing in Madison Square Garden there's nothing I still get chills you know where I was sitting and wasn't it we were lower than the stage and they had the orchestra in two sections they had the strings and the, and the keyboards in one section and then across the stage was with the uh, the winds and brass and drums and in the middle of that there was a walkway and then there was a, a platform that at the very beginning we would play the funny girl overture and the lights would go down and there was this big s like superman but it was for streisand mm -hmm. and at the end of the overture the lights would go up on that it was an elevator that went from the underneath the stage and Barbara would come up through the stage and I was probably 15 feet away from her and the screaming of the audience and just the love, you know, 
um, it was one of the most amazing experiences. And to be able to do that several times a week for the length of the tour was just incredible. I, that never got old. <laughs> Um, so those are those are amazing memories and the places we went to and, and uh... we want to take this opportunity to talk a bit about our sponsor Electric Violin Shop as we listen to Enharmonic Vision the title track from Martha's 1996 album Electric Violin Shop is your one stop shop for all your electric string needs from instruments to amps to effects to bows and strings EVS has it all And if, like Martha, you're an experimenter, EVS has a 30-day return policy that allows you to purchase with confidence. That way, if you get an instrument or a piece of gear that really doesn't resonate with you the way you hoped it would, you can send it back for a refund, minus the shipping costs. That gives you a lot of peace of mind. Back when Martha and I started, it wasn't like that. When you bought a piece of gear, it was yours. And if it didn't work for you, it either went in the closet or you sold it for a fraction of what you paid for it. But also when we started, there wasn't an electric violin shop that you could call and ask questions of professional players to be sure what a piece of gear would do. There's no SoundCloud that had galleries of recordings of different instruments like there is now. SoundCloud.com slash electric violin shop. There was no YouTube with videos of reviews and instruments and gear and amps like there is now. Electric Violin Shop has a channel there. Please take advantage of all the resources the Electric Violin Shop provides so you can focus on your art rather than spending countless hours wondering if your hard-earned money will be well spent. ElectricViolinShop.com I've done some really cool tours. I did a Star Wars in concert tour in 2009 and 10, and that was also arena tours, and that was... um, the first four Star Wars films, they played uh, excerpts of the film. That was sort of before the whole big thing about playing live to film scores. And so we would we would play, you know, it's all John Williams, 80-piece orchestra traveling around. Did he conduct that? No, he didn't. He sanctioned it, but he didn't okay. conduct. Dirk Brose was the main music director, and there were a couple of other conductors, Lucas Richmond and Mark Waters. And um, so it was a huge show. It was, um, get how many trucks and, and buses and and lasers and smoke and um, it was the biggest high definition screen in a, in in an arena setting so they would they would show the scenes and we would play live to the scenes you know from Star Wars the first Star Wars and Princess Leia so we would play Princess Leia theme and whatever the music for that scene was and Anthony Daniels, who's the actor that played C-3PO in all the films, he was he was there live as the narrator, and he would he would introduce each scene and he would play that. And, um, so that was, and that introduced a lot of people not, not only to to Star Wars because there was a whole generation that didn't know Star Wars, um, but also introduced them to a symphony orchestra and the amazing sound that an 80-piece symphony orchestra can have, you know, especially amplified like that, but just, you know, blasting the music of John Williams, it was so exciting, really exciting. 
and getting a chance to talk, you know, in, in intermission or afterwards, or running into some of some of the people, especially you know people that brought their kids and had the, the kids thought they were coming to a really boring orchestra concert, and they were like, I want to play bassoon or I want to play whatever, you know. There was a, a huge triangle solo, and they had the picture of the woman playing triangle, you know, because they they had us on the on the screen as well. Okay. So you could see the, the different members of the orchestra playing along with what was going on on the screen from the movie. Um, so those were those were really fun tours. Um, my first tour was the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And uh, that was fun. Um, and then the you know amazing people I've I've had the opportunity to play live and in the studio, um, especially David Bowie. Um, the first time I played with him was on the stage of Carnegie Hall for the Tibet House Benefit concert in 2001, and um, that. The, how that came into being was um, I had created a, a, new, a new music showcase called Through the Walls that was for uh, ASCAP, because I'm an ASCAP composer, but there wasn't really a place where I felt I could be doing my, my music or that I was represented. I wasn't really writing orchestra stuff at that time, and I wasn't a rock or pop writer. So I went to them with this idea of classical, classically trained composers that were crossing boundaries and playing not classical music, not any one particular genre of music, and that became Through the Walls. And I had done, this was in 2000, 2001, and I had met Tony Visconti the year before um, at a concert. I, I played with Cullen Blundstone from the Zombies, you know. And I met Tony through that. Tony is, of course, um, well known for being David Bowie's longtime producer, and produced T-Rex and many, many other wonderful um, bands and musicians. And Tony got intrigued with what I was doing, and, um, and I thought, I was putting this uh, the showcase together, and I asked Tony, would you be interested to introduce the the first showcase um, because it was again you know classically trained musician it was I was playing doing my music and there was a um, Ben Neal who plays what's called the mutant trumpet he has a, a special trumpet that he's modified and added electronics to and, and then there was another composer performer that also was doing very interesting things with keyboard and electronics. And uh, we were doing it at the cutting room, the old, uh, the, um, before the cutting room moved to where it is now, um, because the owner, Steve Walter, was a jazz guy from, uh, from Berkeley and was very interested in, in, you know, experimental music, so he gave us the space to, to do it. And so um, at the very first showcase, um, people were curious, why was this big rock producer introducing this classical music or new music event it was a, a showcase and the classical people were wondering the rock people were wondering so we had a real amazing combination of people in the audience I, I think um, 
from both well, from both from both worlds. And that day, Tony said, you know, I um, I was talking to my friend David, and I was telling him about this, and and he said you might come. And I'm like, right. And sure enough, two minutes before the show started, I think it was a 7.30 show, the lights went down, and they escorted David Bowie over to my table where I was sitting. I'm like, total shock. And he's sitting in front of me there. And, and so then Tony went and did the whole introduction and did the show. And um, then the, the next day, I got a call from Tony, and he's like, David is playing the Tibet House Benefit Concert next month and wanted to know if you could get a string quartet together to play with him. I said, I think I can do that. <laughs> so that was, um, that happened in, it was February of 2001, and so that was the very first Tibet House Benefit Concert that I played that Philip Glass produces, and he's been producing it for 30-some-odd years, I guess. And um, so we played... We played Heroes. And uh, Tony did the arrangement for the string quartet. Um, Moby played guitar. Moby was one of the guest artists. And um, it was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, for sure. And, and then and David did it another two years, and we, we played with him subsequent two years and then we recorded on Heathen um, during during that process which was right around uh, 9-11 okay. I was going to say because all that was just we didn't know it at the time but it was in the run up to that yeah exactly yeah so you've been in New York how long Are you born and raised my whole life okay born uh, well born in Manhattan, but uh, raised in the Bronx, and then Staten Island, and then I lived in Queens. So now I live just a little north of the city. But um. So, I guess you, you talked about the Jean-Luc Ponty album landing in your hands, and that yeah. started sort of this whole, yeah. this whole run to... I mean, maybe not necessarily away from classical music, but certainly some parallel path stuff. Absolutely. Um, and once I discovered Jean-Luc Ponty, I went out and I was looking for every single... I bet there were no other electric violists, but I, I discovered um, Didier Lockwood and Michael Urbaniak and Noel Pointer and, and was buying records and listening. Then I discovered Turtle Island String Quartet. Kronos Quartet, Laurie Anderson, and so just exponentially discovering this whole world of what you can do with a string instrument. Um, but I and I I never studied I never studied jazz formally. I never studied composition formally. Uh, the way I came into improvisation was um, I was a I was a grad student at UMass in Amherst, and I had a basement apartment, and I basically pulled down the window shades and closed the door and played recordings and just played along with them. Played along with Turtle Island, played along with, with John Luc Ponty and, um, and, and then went out and got my first piece of electronic gear, which is an old analog piece of gear that uh, Dig Digitech, I think it was called, Effectron. Basically do one effect. <laughs> 
and you had to punch the buttons. There was no foot pedals to do. But I made my first demo with that. Okay. So what what year was this? Good question. Late eighties, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the way that I made my first demo, because there was no recording direct, I had a there was a headphone jack out of the Effectron, and at that point I had I had an electric viola that was the instrument from from Ithaca. And I took the headphone, had the, the headphones, put them on the floor with a towel, put a microphone for a tape recorder, and then covered that with a, another towel. And that was that so was how I I was miking the headphones. That's awesome. <laughs> and it came out it came out well. I still have that demo tape, and I sent it off to. Um, Harvest Works for a, a residency in their studios, and I got it, and that's where I started recording my first CD and Harmonic Vision. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking back to probably about that I would have been in would have been mid eighties that I was starting to try to figure out how to multi-track without having a multi-track recorder. We had one of those old dual cassette mm-hmm. deck things that you could dub from one to the other. Right. So I would record what I wanted to on the first cassette and then I would play that cassette through the speakers and I would sing yeah. and play my next track while recording on the B-Deck. Uh-huh. Our deck had like, it was a quarter tone shift. It would shift up every time. Oh, wow. So like, I would have to, I would have to play like a keyboard part would have to be first because then the next track it's be was going to be a quarter step sharp. Wow. So then I'd have to either tune my violin up or sing up a quarter tone. And then when it went back for the second time, now it's a half a step. So you've got to transpose. Yep. So, Plus Plus the room side. That's exactly, you know, the the classic piece by Alvin Lussier, I Am Sitting in a Room. Okay. That's that's basically, I have to remember the the year that was done. He just took a a microphone and and recited this this group of sentences, I am sitting in a room, room unlike every other room. And then he would play that back through the microphone over and over again until by the end, there's no semblance of speech. It's just this incredible sound of, of the room. That's your homework to go check out. So, yeah. So it's, it's created by, by necessity, actually. That's, that's why I did it. I had no other way to do it, and I just figured it out and it worked. Yeah. In so many ways, that's how the creative process works. Yeah. Right? You, just, you take the tools you got and you just have to make them work.
talk a little bit about what's happened in the past and all that. What, what's next? Where, where do you see the journey going from here? Um, again, there's a couple of parallel roads. Um, something I've started in the last few years is composing piece, well, composing for larger ensembles, uh, and as well as with myself as the soloist. So I'm trying to, as composer, carve out a, a career, and as, as soloist. Um, and the first piece I did with that was for a concert band. A piece called Xing, X ing for electric viol and concert band, and I've sub- subsequently made an orchestra version of that, which I did last year in Sarasota. But um, this past year, I had a commission from the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia to write a piece that included um, improvisation. So I created a piece, and this is also something I've been doing. That the, the piece exists in different in different ways. It exists as a as a its own entity for the ensemble, and then it exists as a as a solo vehicle. So the orchestra uh, performed it on its own, and then they performed it twice in the same concert with me as the soloist, and so the audience could experience it on two different levels and by the time I played it they had already heard it once so they had that familiarity which is as an aside often a a big challenge for contemporary music is that it often gets heard only once so people don't get the experience of having that familiarity like we do when we hear Beethoven's fifth or something classic so they had already heard um, the piece in that entity and then they got to hear me play my solo part but also supplementing what the, or- what the orchestra does with my electronics, adding uh, the amazing um, harmonies, depth of sound and, and shimmering techniques and enhancing also the improvisational element which an orchestra very rarely gets to do. So, so they have to improv too, not just Yes, you. and that's something I Im- I put in every single piece that I write, whether it's for me or it's for a band or orchestra or chamber ensemble. There's always an element of improv. Because again, I, that's, I think that's a really important component of the live music experience. And that guarantees it's never going to be the same way twice. So, um, so that's something that I'm going to continue to do is to compose for other forces besides myself. Part of the reason I became a composer was was to create repertoire for me to play. Um, but along the lines, I also commissioned other composers. I have, you know, I have a lot of friends who are composers who had never written for an electric string instrument, so they were curious, and so I would have them come over to my studio and a lot of trial and error, you know, playing, and they would ask, "What happens if you do this? What happens if you do that?" So that's how um, I sort of trying to figure out what box they've got to be able to write in. Yeah, some of them used loops, and some of them used you know some of the effects and um, I've recorded a few pieces and that's my one of my next projects is to put out the recording of those works that I've commissioned over the years uh, and then just to do more soundtrack work films and maybe game games and so 
um, yeah, I have a lot on, on my plate to explore. So who are you drawing inspiration from in the past, and who are you drawing inspiration from from the people that are out today? Well, from the past for sure, Jean-Luc Conti and Laurie Anderson, and all those, you know, the string folks that were doing jazz and improv improvising. Um, like I mentioned, Turtle Island and Kronos Quartet. And um, but what I do is I, I listen and then I, I go away and I create my own thing. Like I said, I have never studied any of this officially or in an academic setting. So I come, I come to it all by a lot of trial and error. And... Um, you know, and I've, I've sort of stayed the, the route with working with hardware, with pedals, you know. Um, I've tried peripherally or worked peripherally with, with using computers. Um, I, I have many colleagues that are using Max MSP to create their works. Um, and that's their, you know, everybody's got their own creative process for it. Um, and, uh, you know, every few months there's a new piece of gear out there or a new computer program or something on your, uh, for iOS. And so I think, it's, you know, it's good to know what's out there and, to, you know, to hear what, what's going on out there. And, um, we'll see where it where it all goes uh, and then you know some people that have been doing it and having good great commercial success and, and some which are staying you know the, the less non-commercial experimental route um, and you know I just I, I have to stay true to, to my soul and, and, and you know keep exploring from inside what, what I can where my musical, my muse is, and that comes from different places. Absolutely, yeah, and, and I, it, it, it will have a place in the next conference somehow, and we're still trying to work on that, but this has been since the very beginning. The issue is, um, and this, this is not just Asta, Asta, this happened with the first, when, when strings sort of, I would say, infiltrated or became a part of the jazz conferences. I, I mentioned IAJE and then became Jen. Um, they didn't know what to call us, so they 
in the jazz world they called us the Jazz String Caucus, and Asta they called it um, Alternative Strings, and because it was an alternative to classical, which is what you know what what the, what string programs in academia have been essentially. Is, is learning standard repertoire and going that way. Um, but, I, you know, with bringing in not just jazz, but, you know, what um, Matt Glazer has done with American Roots and, and Fiddle and, you know, and Daryl Anger and Turtle Island and really expanding what strings can do. Um, so right away, you know, because the, I think, you know, no matter what, when you're dealing with ac academia or you're dealing with an institution that's been around for a long, long time, change comes really slowly. And they have to always find things to call whatever is the new kid in town or, the, or what has not been the norm. So they, they were calling it alternative, and they had alternative competition, so it was anybody that was doing non-classical, they had a whole competition element of that. Uh, but that became broader, all the, the alternative strings became broader in terms of, it wasn't just jazz, it wasn't just fiddle, it wasn't, then, you know, Mark Wood was bringing in his rock thing, and I was bringing in more of the experimental thing, and Chris house and all these players coming in and doing doing their stuff and we were feeling less comfortable with I don't I never felt comfortable with alternative. And right away I was yeah, trying to it's this, almost like it's somehow less legitimate. Right? Exactly well it's an alternative to what the normal is. And I'm so I'm like, well if we have to call it something I mean first of all why do we have to call it something else? But, so I, I created something um, in the viola world that was called the Day of Progressive Viola. <laughs> and I, um, I had John Graham, who was one of the, the real proponents of, of um, contemporary music, and, and um, Danny Seidenberg, who was in Turtle Island at the time, and we did a whole day-long seminar violas. But then um, more people were feeling uncomfortable with the term alternative. And so a few years ago, it became eclectic strings. And I'm like, I felt even less comfortable with eclectic. What? Eclectic? Why? So, so, you know, and every time I had to, I, I put in to do a, a workshop or a presentation for ASTA. Uh, had to you had to call it something. It had to go into one some genre or or other. And I think the just the last straw was this last one um, because I was you know offering a, I think uh, submitting one of my improv workshops. And why why do I have to call it eclectic strings? Why is improvisation eclectic? Why is it not part of the regular repertoire or part of something? Why you know? Because as soon as you say eclectic, it's a, it's pigeonholing it into being something that is not the norm. It's not classical. It's not something that is normally taught. And that's not so not true anymore. And that's what. That's what sparked that whole thing. I just, I innocently put that question up on Facebook. 
and and it unleashed a floodgate, which was terrific because we needed we need to have that conversation, and the powers that be need to hear that it's not eclectic anymore. It's not a side parallel line or a subset of something else. It's as legitimate. It's as legitimate, and you know, and we we're you know putting our money where our mouth is. We're, we're speaking that language. We're coming from classical training, uh, and all the people that were on that on that list, you know, including Rachel Barton Pine, who straddles all worlds, you know, and she had some wonderful points to make, and the, and there were a lot of educators that are wonderful players, and you know, and, and in teaching have teaching positions, and they they were voicing. What they what they come up against in academia, and so I think the first step is to ha- you know to, is to talk about it and, and bring that to the forefront, and and I think this is going to help um, teachers broaden their consciousness of why it's not just classical or something else. And by the way, look at any program in any level of string education in orchestras in, in schools, including public schools, intermediate, middle schools, junior high, high school, college, in their concerts, it's not just classical music. They're playing show tunes. They're playing movie tunes. They're playing Led Zeppelin. What orchestra hasn't played Kashmir? By the way, they, those kids probably don't know who the heck Led Zeppelin is, but they love Kashmir. They love playing that. So it's already in there. It's just that they're not acknowledging that it's that it has been in there. And it doesn't delegitimize it because we're broadening the scope of the repertoire that we're playing. And by the way, commission a composer to, you know, commission a classical, commission a jazz, commission some new music for, for schools, commission a student composer. So, um, but it, that's a little digression. But I think the, main, the most important thing is to get these teachers familiar with... Um, they, you know, some of them can can afford to bring in electric strings, which is great, uh, or bring in one instrument, bring in a quartet, bring in a whole orchestra. Bring in improvisation. Bring in different styles, and there are plenty of people out there that are doing workshops like us, you and I, and 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 um, who each offer different things. Um, I'm talking with a with a, a program about going in this summer, and it's always it, you know it's been um, younger kids and and they want to expand what they're doing and they want to bring me in once or, or twice a week to work with the kids on different styles and then and what I do is I work with them show them different styles, but then ultimately have them create their own pieces using a, using their own voices which is another thing they're not that's not as encouraged or taught again because the information is not there about how to go about doing it I think a lot of it is that the teachers don't know right so we, we have to teach the teachers and that's what I do is I you know I do a workshop for the teachers and then work with the students along with the teachers so you know, hopefully, it's been it's been coming, but it's been really slow in coming. But I, I think now it seems maybe the floodgates will be open for good, and we'll 
they'll really have that as part of the, um, you know, what, what teachers really expect and, and, and want to bring into their, um, into their classrooms. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for meeting with me. This has been really fun. Oh, my pleasure. Um, tell people where they can find you on social media and your website and all that. Um, yeah, my website is www.marthamook.com, and that's Mook with an E, so M-O-O-K-E. <laughs> and I am on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, my handle is Electviola. Of course, short for Electric Viola. And... Um, uh, I've got a couple of different Facebook pages. All of you violists out there, I run a Facebook group called Violas on the Verge. So come on in and sign up. Um, even if you're a violinist, five-stringer, um, come on in. And, and there's there's wonderful um, Facebook groups there for ele- and, uh, electric violins and electric strings. Um, electric violin shop is one of my go-tos I tell everybody go there as a resource <laughs> um, they're as good of a resource whether you're going to buy something or not but if you're going to buy something buy it from them they're good folks and um, keep exploring and um, check out lots of lots of good music out there I've got uh, a couple of solo CDs out there recordings which are uh, and Harmonic Vision was my first solo CD put out in 1997. And I have a duo that's called, um, the duo's called Boeing with electric guitar player Randy Hudson. And the CD is called Cafe Mars. Some really cool tunes. The reason we're called Boeing is because Randy, the guitarist, uses an Ebo. And sometimes you don't know who's playing what part. Sometimes he sounds more like a bowed string instrument, and if I'm kicking in some distortion, I sound more like a you know Jimi Hendrix electric guitar. So we have a lot of fun with those songs on the, on the recording. So, um, thanks so much. So that's my conversation with Martha Mook. We could have gone on for four more hours. She's an incredible source of knowledge and history and creativity, and she's just a really fun hang. So please go buy her music on iTunes while you still can. During the summer months, my touring schedule is insane. Plus, I'm in the process of writing and recording two solo albums right now, so my time is really tight. Instead of two interviews per month this summer, we'll be releasing one a month until fall when I can finally catch my breath again. So if you have not listened to all 26 of the previous episodes, please take some time and go back and hit the archive. We really love all the artists that we've featured, and I think you will too. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month with another rock star violinist.